Uh, good evening and thanks for having me. You know that uh, when your statistics uh, students are positive, I, you, you're on the right I'm wondering, I mean, who gets so excited <laughs> and remembers the people who teach them ordinarily squares? I mean, come on, right? <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, when you start talking about vector error correction oh, models yeah. and that, uh, oh, you know, ART, yeah. oh, 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 yeah, so I'm happy that, uh, they're, 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 they're you know, we have to invite you uh, because in a way you straddle the world of policy and the world of academia knowledge production uh, rather seamlessly. And, uh, and so for us, it's a privilege to have the opportunity to yeah. pick your mind on so many things that are happening all around us. But what we do with the segment, we often first take a, bi- a biographical account and a sketch of who it is we're talking to uh, because we feel that is important as well. So for you, where did it all start? Um, and uh, I know there's a round trip from the Eastern Cape and now to the beautiful Winelands. Uh, so, uh, yeah, where did it all start for you? Wow, thank you. Um, I, uh, um, so I'm a, rural, um, I'm a rural child born in the Eastern Cape, specifically in Tata. Um, but it really starts um, sure. where you start. I really believe in purpose and destiny. And one of the things that's just coming to me strongly now is that uh, before I was born, I was formed for such a time as this. And I really believe that we were born for purpose and every South African and every person in this world, you know, um, was created for something far greater than just making money or just earning a salary or just being in a job. You know, there was a purpose in mind when you were conceived uh, that the Lord had. And I believe I was born for a purpose. I think for me, that's where it starts actually. And uh, I'm grateful that I've discovered that purpose and I think that purpose for me is where it all begins. And so the whole time when I was being educated, uh, my parents didn't know by the time I was born and when they educated us. I went to Grandstown, a mm. uh, big family. There's five of us in the family, two brothers um, and two sisters. <clears throat> I'm what they call Mafungwashe. I'm the oldest yes. girl. Um, so some of you may understand uh, the personality. Change of the oldest girl. I probably have all of them. Um, and then, um, <laughs> so uh, I've grown up in that uh, loving uh, family. Uh, my family, my mom and dad believed in education. They sacrificed, you know. We're from the Eastern Cape. They were mm. public servants. And my parents really um, uh, understood the value of education. And they took us to schools in Grandson because they understood that if we give our children the best shot at this, sure, let, sure. let them be the best at whatever it is they do. My dad used to always say, if you're a cleaner, be the best cleaner. Mm. If you're going to be a hairstylist, be the best hairstylist, you know. So he didn't know at the time that I'd become an economist. Uh, but I guess he ensured that I'd become the best economist because they definitely gave us the tools, all of us in our family, really. Um, so I'm really grateful for that. And I think the journey has been towards that. So from Grandstown to UCT, all the way to Stellenbosch. How I ended up at Stellenbosch was because I think at UCT we did what we call neoliberal economics. And there was no development economics at mm. that time, but honors in economics and the business science. Sure. And I always used to ask myself, what is the purpose of this economics? And this was very early on. I don't understand how it's going to change Africa. So esoteric, so abstract, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't understand how it can use this economics to transform South Africa and Africa with this poverty. I didn't understand. So anyway, I started working. And most of my buddies and people that I studied with went into asset management. They worked in investment banks and all this fancy stuff. And I knew in my heart, this is not for me. 
And I prayed about it, actually, and I said, Lord, what is it now that I must do? And I actually got an, um, this Top 300 Companies book. I remember Wuhisa gave me that book. Wuhisa mm. is an entrepreneur. I think about some of you may know him. Wuhisa Kabaka. Yes, it's yeah, yeah. of my brothers. Oh, but he, gave me, okay. he gave me this book called Top 300 Companies, and I used that book, and I opened, I sent my CV to all of those companies. One of them responded, eh? One. Wow. And I believe that was the answer of the Lord, and it was called Future Growth Asset Management at the time, and they took me in as an administrator. By the way, as Zinyege, Abandu at Business Science, Economic Honors, Finance Honors, were all analysts. I was mm. the one who came in as administrator. You see the anom- anomalies of South Africa. Hey. Anyway, I did the work, um, and I entered into asset management, got introduced to infrastructure, pension assets, and the like, and you'll recall that that's my PhD. My PhD yes. was on pension yes. funds and how you use them for national development. So it came in from my very first job. So you must never look down on your first job, mm. on the first opportunity and the opening, because it's part of the plan. Um, but sometimes we don't see the puzzle. It's a big puzzle. Exactly. And so long yeah. and short, that was how I entered into the workspace. But then I left because I was like, I don't think I'm called to be in the private sector. And I prayed mm. a lot about things from a very early age. But the long and short is that I was then led to go into kind of like writing poetry, <laughs> and, uh, Wait, you're a poet? I I was, we need to talk yeah, about yeah, yeah. this. No, no, literally, wait, 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 literally. Wait, wait. So my family was worried, thinking, "Hey, what's happening to our child? She's writing poems in Durban and Ebi anthology." Doctor Antabi Singh. I have. I can actually share that part of me on another platform, but I've got an <laughs> anthology. I've actually got two. I've got one called um, uh, "Abundant Living." Uh, that was one I launched in 2010 wow. at Care. And then the second one was called Being Chasing Destiny. And that's really an anthology of the journey no, of my life. No, man, I need to talk to I'm Mansu. Mansu must make time uh, uh, for us to hear some of <laughs> some of your poetry <laughs> reading. Because, you know, we're inviting you here as a, as an economist and as a stats yes, lecturer. And in the case. I don't know how I got scared towards this, but it's the journey I get. So talk- that's how it happens. Yeah, that yeah. Both sides of my mind work. But uh, on that side, I took a break, a bit of a break to, mm. to get onto the development part after the private sector. And I said, no, I think I need to do more. But it was a project. Yeah. Let's talk so, about that. Um, because you, you at some stage were with the, you know, Socioeconomic Consultative Council in the Eastern Cape, yes. EXEC. Um, for the benefit of some of our listeners who might not know, EXEC plays a very interesting role in, you know, not just economic research for policy purposes, but even long-term planning. Uh, in the yes. province. Um, yes. That and your experience in infrastructure. I mean, you know, you, you can't speak to anybody in the Eastern Cape and talk about the solution to the socioeconomic problems not hitting up against the infrastructure. How, how was that mm-hmm. moment for you? Um, so let me tell you. So I went through a journey with what I call a desert experience um, where I was searching now, searching for answers understanding I'm not called into the private sector, mm. but now what is it that I'm supposed to do? Um, Lord, help me, help me, and I pray a lot, and I ask the Lord, help me, show me. So I spent a long time seeking, and I knew one thing, I must do development. I don't know how it looks, but I do know that I enter into development as my next job. Where this must happen, I'm not sure either. But as I was seeking the Lord and praying, I was led to... East London. My brother stayed there. Fortunately, we're family, mm. and he had an empty room, and I was able to ask him, hey, can I stay in that room? Um, and he was like, yep. And uh, basically, that's how I moved to East London. And so that's where my journey with Exit started, because I then was doing, at the time, my master's research on Tibet colleges and how artisan mm. and skills development must be a solution for youth unemployment. And then I went to the Mercedes-Benz um, vocational 
uh, center there. There was a guy called Stephen Gould, mm. and I met him. On the back of that, it was not that I knew anyone. I just went as stirred, and I literally knocked on doors and said, I'm doing research on technical training and vocational education. Can you give me answers to my questionnaire, to my survey? And long and short, I was led to exit in that process. They said, hey, Exec is heading up the thing called JIPSA, which was the Joint Initiative for Filing mm. Skills Acquisition. So anyway, long and short, I was linked to Exec. They, they turns out they had um, adverts at the time applied, and I got in. But the, the, here's the thing, what was for me, what I knew that I was... Ah, Dr. Mleko, we're battling with your line there. So maybe hold the line there for uh, for us for a second. Let's try and uh, reestablish our connection with Dr. Ntabiseng Mleko. On a much better line. It is indeed our Thought Leader Thursday segment, and our Thought Leader on this Thursday is Dr. Ntabiseng Muleko, uh, who is a economics and statistics senior lecturer out at the University of Stellenbosch's Business School, also a chairperson of the board of the National Empowerment Fund, former uh, a researcher, project manager, and um, uh, 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 I guess, uh, uh, yeah, research, as I said, at Exec and a former CEO at a development agency and deputy commissioner or deputy chairperson out at the gender uh, uh, or the, at the Commission for Gender Equality, having been appointed out in 2017. And uh, we speak to her tonight about many of these roles and I guess uh, what uh, insights it gives her insofar as how we confront the big, hairy and messy problems. Uh, from a socio-economic perspective that we have. And uh, Dr. Muleko, uh, just before yes. we lost you there, you, you were, I guess, talking about some of your work linking industrial concerns with uh, vocational and artisanal learning, uh, which I think is a critical thing, least of all in a province mm. like the Eastern Cape. I think um, I, uh, the point is, what is your vision? Mm. And so how I met up with Exit was that their vision was to alleviate poverty. It was like something had hit me. When I read that vision online, and I, mm. it, it aligned with my vision, and I knew I had to work here. Fortunately, uh, the doors opened, and that's where my journey with development really started. Um, and it has continued since then. I think when you talk to all these roles, the vision is always to impact mm. so that you can alleviate poverty, so you can create jobs, so that you can bring life, you know. Sure. And I think that's what we need, is that we're so desperate, you know, for hope as a nation. And I think there is hope. And I think that there is an intent. Uh, we are so rich with minerals, mm. rich with humanity, rich with people, rich with ideas. And we have suffered so long as Africans and as people, particularly if you look from where I come from, uh, in the rural areas, people survive on very little. But the humanity they sure. have, you know, the kindness, the compassion, you'll find a family with nothing sharing with a family what they have, the little they have. Mm. And I think we can do so much with that as a people. Yeah. Uh, but I think taking it back to economics and uh, development and industrialization, I think what is critical for me when you talk about vocational education mm. and artisans, we have to, as Africans, take um, pride in developing an artisanal class, a working class, that actually has enterprises and, 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 and is entrepreneurial mm. in building things. Because I think we've come from a generation that looks so much at university education sure. and uh, being in the office. Um, but we need to get our hands dirty if we're going to rebuild this continent. We need to have yeah. builders, artisans, mm. bricklayers, you know, boilermakers. And that's what we need. But that's part of the puzzle. And I think that's why I did that research. And for me, 
it uh, it is something that I still yeah. strongly believe in. I actually issued a book on it because sure. it was something that I, I strongly believe. And career guidance is a critical enabler mm. to that because people don't know these vocations and these skills. And we look down on them as Africans. But actually, this is how Europe has been built. This exactly. is how Germany yeah, has yeah. become at the forefront of the global economy. It's on the back of artisanal training and building vocations sure, sure. and, and ed- vocational education. So, Dr. so Muleko, some of the lessons I've learned. I want mm. us to talk about this point you make, which I think is critical. This, this idea that you know, we have to engender this culture of producing things, right? Yes, Uh, yes, 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 our economy has become servicified, if I can say that. Uh, But there's still an important role of producing products and things that are tangible that people can use. Um, And of course, that you can exchange for value and so on, and that's fine. But a big part of that, um, certainly even in the economics literature, a lot of people talk about this. I mean, from... Rosenstein wrote down right through to somebody like Gavin Mbeki, in the case of the former Transkai, where there's certain types of infrastructure that are a precondition for that to happen. You know, uh, mm. you can produce as much as you want, but if you don't have a rail line that is built for something else than just taking labor out of the former Transkai, you're going to be in a bit of a fix. Same with the roads, mm. same with, you know, telecommunications and connectivity in this day and age. Um, just your thoughts on that, on infrastructure as a precondition, but also as a catalyst for industrial investment. Yes, so I think part of, part of the process of rebuilding a country is that you've got to have a vision. I think we always forget that, is that what are we trying to achieve? Sure. What is it that we're trying to do as we rebuild a country? Why do we need to have an economic strategy? Primarily because the strategy will articulate for you what you're trying to achieve. And I think, um, for me, if we're building a new South Africa that is inclusive, that has redistribution, mm. and you don't produce, you are mistaken because you're not going to build household income, you're not going to build jobs, you're not going to be able to create new entrepreneurs who enter into the market and expand, you're not going to be able to build economies of scale because part and parcel of the problem is that we haven't built new industries um, and we haven't built new I'd say enough at scale and massified SMEs uh, that take on the big players, that take on scale. And I think the opportunities are there in production. So if I unpack that, what are the critical enablers? Infrastructure is one, but I think the first one that we usually forget is the mindset of our people. We as a people have to, in our minds, decide and have a change in our thinking and be decisive in the fact that we want to rebuild this country. We have to, in our hearts, have set in our hearts that actually I want to be part of those who rebuild. Families have to decide to rebuild. Families and families, people make, uh, communities are made up of families, right? And we always think that we are individuals, but we're actually individuals in a, it's like a cell in a whole body, um, the part of a body. And I think that we as an entirety of a community and a nation have to have a decision that we're going to rebuild this nation, whatever it takes. I think that's the first thing, fundamental. I think the second thing is that when you have a vision of what you're trying to do in communities and you say, okay, communities should be able to produce at least some of their food stuff. It's not everything that you'll do. So what are the requirements, right? So you, we always look at everything at a macro level. I want to take it to the micro level. So we'll look at the macro stuff. But at the micro level, you've got to look at what are you eating in communities, mm. right? What are the main things that you are actually making use of? Every community eats. I don't care what you're eating. You could be eating cassava, you could be eating mm. omelette, you could be eating bap. There is a staple. And I can tell you with um, uh, certainty, there is land that is probably accessible to a community, and that's a factor of production. We call it an econ- economics. 
but you usually need finance and also you need enabling infrastructure to put something on that land, whether it's equipment, manufacturing, or build a site, but that you actually, and you use human capital to convert whatever input or raw material you have into mm. a good or an output. So I think those are the things that you need if you're going to get that at scale. So that's why you have DFIs. That's yeah. why you need to scale up NES, IDC. And also the banks. We've got to get the banks on the party. Mm. Uh, but the second role is that the enabler, because remember, when you build these communities in Europe and the U.S., sure. they didn't necessarily have railroad. We always put mm. the problem before the solution. Mm. People still made food without railway tracks, right? They had to eat. People then moved the food because they, they had massive quantities. They began to have economies of scale, and they began to export and transport it using steam and boats and all other kind of things. And that was when you massify. But at least if at a local level and at a community level, you're starting to produce, to consume. Mm. And some of the things you use, even in your house, everyone uses tables, even chairs. And I can tell you now, even beds, beds, linen, these are things we are buying from retailers who are importing the large majority. If you look at our trade surplus, if you look at the goods we import net into South Africa, a huge proportion of those, if we decide, and that's where the mindset comes in, that we're going to start to produce some of the things that we use every day in our mm, lives. Mm. You start to have what we call the multiply effect in communities because that money stays locally because you've got someone in the community who gets some of the household income distributed to them, right? They're paying salaries to stop. That's where the multiply effect comes in. That's where household income comes in. But we always look at, I don't know, external things that are out there. I think the government then comes in when you're looking at massification and making things easier, right? Mm. When you want to roll, because now you have a tomato factory or your tomato producer, exactly. but the tomatoes yeah. are getting destroyed on the road on the way to um, the market, right? Mm. And you then need the infrastructure. So absolutely, infrastructure is critical. But I think that infrastructure cannot always be the excuse mm. that is used for why we are not actually doing what can be done by the people. I like the, the government. comment. Just, just a quick one there, Dr. Muleko. I like the comment you're making around production for meeting basic needs, right? And that doesn't necessarily mean it must be production that is at a subsistence level. You can produce more than just your own familial requirements and uh, the, the role of local markets as well. And I'm quite interested in this with how much money we spend on uh, you know, social transfers. I mean, surely when we t- think about consumption and the big role of social transfers, grants in particular... Um, yes. in securing the consumption basket of uh, a household. Um, it just makes a one-way trip to some of the mainstream retailers, which is, uh, I yes. guess, something that many people yes. lament. Just your yes. thoughts on that and what we could be potentially doing a bit differently um, and using yes, those that, as a catalyst, yeah. That is, uh, for me, a massive question. We have the Social Development Department at least 200 billion, 95, if not 90, almost the majority of that, I'd argue 90 to 95% is grants. Between social grants, mm. old age grants, and um, also the um, child grant. Um, the, 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 the SRD grant is a new addition. Now, when you ask yourself, this $200 billion in the budget, how much of it is going to local producers, right? Mm. So if we were to say local producers were to start producing a good oil, rice, I don't know people what people eat as bread, right? You, you have a locally uh, based manufacturer that makes this bread whereby you enable some form of purchase because not the entire, val- not the entire 
um, amount that you're given as a grant would necessarily be for food. Some of it is used for clothing. Other parts of it is used for other things that you mm. may need to pay. But if a certain portion of it was actually directed to a local business or local entity that produced quality food or quality product that was to the standard that you met. Now, instead, what happens, you get the money, you go to the Chinese or the Pakistani store in the corner, or you go to ShopRite Boxer, and that's where the money goes. And how much of that is owned by South Africans? How much of Boxer or Checkers or the um, Pakistani-owned local store is owned by a local? That money goes uh, under the mattress, um, or wherever it goes, or it goes to the shareholders of uh, uh, pick and pay. Or foreign bondholders or whomever. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Dr. Muleko, exactly. hold so, the line there for me for a bit. We've got a spot break mm-hmm. nearing on us, and uh, you know more than most that, uh, uh, especially here, we need to collect that money, you know. Uh, so so let's go <laughs> to ads, and then we, when we come back, uh, we'll uh, continue on that score and also wrap up uh, as we near the end of our conversations tonight. Indeed, Dr. Ntabiseng Muleko is our thought leader on this Thursday uh, here on the Mighty Metro. And uh, yeah, she uh, joins us uh, all the way from the University of Stellenbosch's Business School, from the NEF, from the Commission on Gender Equality in Dibalandonina. And uh, yeah, great to have her on the show. And uh, Dr. Muleko, just I guess as we near our wrapping up, um, I mean, I'm quite interested. As I said, you sit in different places. There's a lot that's happening. There's the ecological and climate crisis. There's the Ukraine story. There's the cost of living crisis. There are strikes everywhere. In Atisigui, some of discontent. Um, mm, mm. It might seem like too much, right? Uh, people often talk about a poly crisis. Um, mm. how, how do we think better about the sequencing of what we do? Because I think the point we were talking about on infrastructure and industrialization, um, as you were saying, we, can, we kind of have to be a bit more critical of it. Um, that one doesn't always follow the other. Um, and, and let's think about that. I mean, just your, your thoughts on even, I would extend it even to the question of GBV. How do you confront GBV when you don't have rape kits, don't have functional forensic labs, don't have all of the things that can lead you to successful convictions as one part of the deterrent, uh, but uh, also lead you to some behavioral change? So it's a real difficult one. Um, my framing is quite different from the norm. Uh, I look at the problems um, I, I, I use the example of Joseph. Joseph was in a desert. Joseph was betrayed. Joseph was sold by his family. Mm. Um, I look at how he ended up in prison. It was unfair. He had done nothing, accused of things. He then is forgotten by the very people he helped in the very prison. So, But he still was able to help an entire nation sure. and alleviate poverty. So I think our mindset shift has to come forth. And I think, I think the way we... Um, see things is very critical. So the problem statement you've put before me is exactly the same for me. For me, it doesn't defeat me. I see that, okay, there is a problem, right? There is a problem with the problem of GBV. There's a problem with family. There's a problem with um, patriarchy and toxic masculinity. There is a problem with consent and understanding where to draw the line Mm. because of our culture. Um, there is a problem. We've done um, site visits to 6% of South African police stations as the commission, and we have made findings in the SAPS report, and we are following through some of those findings. We continue to do court, um, court monitoring, and there are serious structural problems in the courts as well. Uh, does that mean that there's no solution? There is, and I think that's where now my shift comes. And my view says that um, the problems are there. They are real. We do have a crisis of culture. We do have a crisis of abuse. 
but we also have hope in that there are people with solutions and there are solutions that we have seen on the ground, but we just haven't massified. So when you've given a person with solution to massify that solution, it impacts not just one nation, but it can entire an entire yeah. continent or region, right? Um, we've got to find the good places, the good spots, the people that are carrying mm. something that is hopeful and multiply that back that person. If there's someone in your office, in your community, in your, um, in your region, your space that is carrying light, back that person because it's likely that mm. therein lies the solution. Mm. I think on the side of the economy, if I look at the problems of the economy, they will. They will. We have highest unemployment, poverty in the world, right? Inequality in the world. But I also see a South Africa that is embedded with mineral resources, that is embedded with human capacity, engineers like none other on this continent. Um, even though they're running from ESCOM, uh, unfortunately, but they are there, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, we, we, we have the solution, but the will is not there because the people are not seeing someone they can back. And I think we've got to give people an opportunity. So I think... For me, on the industrial question, look at what Singapore and the Asian countries did. They backed a family, an individual, and they said, make it work. Now we have Sansui, now we have Lenovo, mm. now we have Qatar. Mm. It wasn't necessarily government, it was individual, right? It's always about that. They're individuals who carry certain solutions, and now they own Land Rover. And who would have thought that your Range Rover is going to be owned by the Indian um, <clears throat> family of Tata and the mm. Tata group? Now mm. it's majority owned by them, primarily because someone had a vision. At the beginning, Tata used to make those cars, you might have laughed at them, but it started with a vision, a sure. family, an sure. individual who was backed and given finance, capital. Also, someone believed in that person, and then they set out to do what they did. So I see things slightly differently. Mm. Um, and I hope, I believe that God has a plan for this continent. I really do, for South Africa especially. And I think that we've overcome so much um, tragedy and loss. Mm. Um, and I think it's primarily because of the role we're going to play yeah. in, um, in, in, the, in the continent, but also in our own, uh, we're going to see our own redemption. And I really believe yeah. in that strongly. Dr. So I'm hopeful. Yeah, I'm yeah. hopeful. I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. Where we are now, we can't, we can't lose hope. Uh, we, we can't, can't lose hope because can't. without that, what do we have, Doctor Muleko? Yeah. We're gonna have to leave it here. I mean, we could go on for another hour. There's so many other things, so much other ground I want us to cover, but uh, we'll have to leave it here for now. If you just caught it, well, you can find it on metrofm.co.za. That's where you get our podcast, Doctor Ntabiseng Muleko. Thank you very much for your time. Months we just walked in, um, and I must make sure. Uh, that uh, she responds there with the promise that she was making behind the glass door there, saying, Oh, the anthology, Yako, is our be Let's talk about it.